Hello, and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Pi. And I'm your co-host, Lulu. Pi, before we dive into the official episode, is there anything that you've been into or up to lately that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Well, I moved back to my college's campus and I just started my spring semester, so I've been pretty busy with that and haven't had a ton of free time. I did manage to read Our Violent Ends by Chloe Gong, which is the conclusion to her duology that's a retelling of Romeo and Juliet in 1920s Shanghai, and we both liked the first book in this duology, uh, These Violent Delights, so much that we did a whole episode on it, and I can confidently say that Our Violent Ends was a really good conclusion to the series. It had such an interesting and unique setting and the characters were all so compelling and it has some really unique spins on a well-told story. It also gave me a lot of emotions because it is after all a retelling of a tragedy, but I would highly recommend reading that series. I also reread an old favorite, which is The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. It's a book about a young journalist who is offered the opportunity to interview a famous aging Hollywood star who has seven husbands, a couple Oscars, and a lot of secrets. And it's just a really interesting book that looks at Hollywood and fame and public personas and ambitious women. And it's really enjoyable. It's one of my favorite books. Finally, I have been watching The Legend of Vox Machina, which is an adult animated fantasy TV show based off of a D&D game run by a bunch of voice actors and I've never been able to get into the D&D game itself which is called Critical Role just because there are literally hundreds of hours of content for it but I have been enjoying the TV show because it's a lot shorter and kind of condenses things into a more reasonable length so that's been kind of fun to watch so far as a D&D fan. Critical Role fans and I say this in the nicest possible way kind of scare me just because I can't imagine having enough time in my life to watch hours upon hours of D&D. But apparently the TV show is pretty good and also a lot shorter, so I might check that out sometime on your recommendation. I personally just finished reading Not My Problem by Kara Smith, which is a young adult novel about an Irish schoolgirl who starts an unofficial business solving people's problems in exchange for favors, and a lot of shenanigans ensue. It was really great. Kara Smith is, I think, one of the funniest authors currently writing young adult contemporary novels because she's really good at balancing like laugh-out-loud humor with like really more serious character growth. I would definitely recommend it if you're into that kind of genre. I also just finished watching Sort Of on HBO Max, which is a TV show about a millennial nanny living in Toronto, dealing with the family that they work for, and also navigating their identity as the non-binary child of Pakistani immigrants. It's really good, very heartfelt and nuanced, and also has some very groundbreaking representation. I've also been reading Amanda Gorman's debut book of poetry, Call Us What We Carry, which is, of course, phenomenal because it's by Amanda Gorman. Like, what did we expect? <laughs> but uh, I guess we should probably just turn to the actual topic of the episode. It's February, which means that it's Black History Month. So for this episode, we are going to be talking about two historical fantasy novels by Black authors, The Master of Gin by P. Jelly Clark and The Conductors by Nicole Glover. I personally am very proud that we're on track to actually record and release this episode in February because you might remember this from a couple months ago, but our Pride Month episode sort of ended up coming out in September. So I'm glad we were actually being punctual and on schedule for this one. I know, we're actually on the ball for once. I'm very proud of us. The first book we're going to be talking about is A Master of Jin, and it is a murder mystery set in Cairo in 1912. 
If you have heard of Paige Ellie Clark, it's set in the same universe as some of his other works, including the short story A Dead Gin in Cairo, which sort of introduces the characters and the world that his book is set in, and it's also another novella. So I would definitely recommend reading A Dead Gin in Cairo before you read this, because they're both very good, and you can read it online for free at Tor. I love Tor's free fiction. Like I said, A Master of Jinn is set in Cairo in the early 20th century, but it's a very different version of Cairo from the one in our own world because the world is this kind of mashup of steampunk and magic and real history. So there's airships and automatons and sorcerers and angels and jinn, but also like there's Kaiser Wilhelm and like British colonial powers and like real history. And also, before we, I guess, get too far into this episode, if you don't know, jinn are basically supernatural creatures from pre-Islamic and Islamic mythology and theology, which I figured I should explain before we get too far into this episode. They're sort of, I guess, where like the idea of genies come from. They're kind of considered less powerful than angels or demons, but they're kind of associated with like air and fire and they're like powerful but tricky supernatural creatures. So anyway, the basic gist of the world of a master of jinn is that 40 years before this book is set, a mystic named Al-Jahiz opened doors to the other worlds and let in all sorts of magical creatures like angels and jinn, and they've all just been kind of hanging out in our world ever since. And now magic is a very commonly accepted part of the world. And also due to the fact that there is magic and also kind of this advanced technology, colonial powers have basically been kicked out of Egypt a lot earlier than in our history, and Egypt is now one of the major powers of the world. Basically, it's not only a steampunk story and a fun murder mystery, it's also anti-colonialist fantasy, which I think is really interesting. The actual plot of A Master of Jinn focuses on Fatma El-Shrawi, who is the youngest woman working for the Ministry of Alchemy, Enchantments, and Supernatural Entities, which is, you know, basically a government agency that deals with all the jinn and angels that have now started popping up around the world. Over the course of the book, Fatma investigates the murder of a society of British wannabe mystics who were sort of trying to follow in Al-Jahiz's footsteps to rediscover the knowledge that he used to open doors to the other world. Uh, but then they all get recently murdered and Fatma is pulled into what starts out as a murder in investigation but becomes this larger conspiracy when someone claiming to be the returned Al-Jahiz pops up in Cairo. And what starts out just being a procedural story suddenly becomes one that questions kind of the entire fabric of this world. So on the surface, it's a murder mystery about, you know, people dying and conspiracies and tracking down murder suspects. But also what Clark really does best in Master of Jin is construct this incredibly imaginative and expansive historical fantasy novel that's just really fun and interesting to read. I would love to read an article um, about P.J.L.A. Clark's historical inspirations for this book and what he changed and what remained the same from history because I'm a bit of a history nerd and this book obviously draws a lot on existing history but also changes a lot and it just feels like a very rich lived in world where the author has sat down and was like, okay, so magic enters this world in this year, in this country for this reason, how would this affect the rest of the world? And it's just really interesting and like clearly very well thought out. There's kind of this ripple effect that goes out from when Al-Jahi has opened the doors to other worlds and it shows how much it's affected history up until the point the book takes place, which is just really fascinating to read about. Agreed. I just really enjoyed getting to see deeper insight into this world. Because like I said, there's a short story that sort of introduces this magical steampunk Cairo that came out maybe like 2016. And then he followed that up with uh, a novella, which is called The Haunting of Tramcar 015, that delves a little bit more into it. But in this book, you really get to dive into it. And it was just very interesting to see like the very expansive world, not just like Cairo, but also how it sort of fits into this wider geopolitical world and political tensions happening and countries that have magic and countries that don't have magic. 
to me, it was pretty clear that this book was written by historian because the breadth of the world building and the way that like the repercussions of magic and steampunk technology are considered in relation to religion and race and politics and colonialism is just very well thought out and very comprehensive. Like, you know, there is a murder mystery that keeps you turning the pages. But for me, what I really enjoyed about this book was getting to see more about the world that Clark had built in previous shorter works. Yeah, honestly, one of my main thoughts after finishing this book was that I would love to hear more about Clark's research process and world building for this series, because clearly he had to do a lot of research on both mythology and theology and real life history. And I'm just like so curious about how this intersected in his brain and where he got the ideas for stuff. And I would just like love to hear more about that at some point. I know, like there's a lot of little details about this book and the world that it takes place in that obviously just have an incredible amount of thought behind them. The fact that like the fact that automatons are called boilerplate eunuchs is just like a very clever world building detail. Um, but we probably should actually talk about the plot of this book and not just the fantasy stuff as much as I think that's really cool. So like I said at the start of this episode, the main character Fatma is an agent for a ministry that deals with all the supernatural problems that crop up in Cairo. So she herself is a human who has no magical powers, but she just got like a lot of training and the ability to save the day and like fill out a lot of paperwork about it afterwards. Speaking of paperwork, I really liked the way that magic is now very normalized in this world because a whole generation of people, including Fatma, have grown up in a world with magic and magical beings. And to them, it's just kind of business as usual, which I found very enjoyable. Like Fatma will like defeat a gym on a mission for her ministry and they'll just be like, oh God, there's going to be so much paperwork involved in that. Oh no, which is just very fun to read about. Yeah, I really enjoy when magic is sort of an accepted part of the world and you get to really just delve into the nitty gritty of like, what would it mean for magic to be real? Not just like, oh my gosh, this is so cool, but oh wow, this can be kind of inconvenient and annoying. It's kind of fun. So prior to Master of Jinn, in the story that introduced this world and Fatma's character, she helped save the universe after someone tried to open a door to this like realm of eldritch beings. So she's like kind of an old hat at dealing with magical threats. But then at the start of A Master of Jinn, this group who are known as the Hermetic Brotherhood of Al-Jahiz, which are led by this guy who is called Lord Alistair Worthington and is a British lord who's obsessed with mysticism, but also like in a very racist colonizer, cultural appropriation kind of way. Anyway, so the Brotherhood are all burned alive in this like very brutal and obviously magical way. And Fatma is tasked with hunting down the culprit along with her new detective partner, Hadia, and some help from her girlfriend, Siti. Also, can I just say, I'm gonna sort of veer off from talking about plot just for a second and say that I just love Siti so much. You were not alone in that. I also love Siti. She was one of my favorite parts of this book. So Fatma is a lesbian and Siti is the woman that she's in a relationship with at the start of the novel. And they met during a dead gin in Cairo. And even though they sort of got off on a bit of the wrong foot, they were allies by the end. And by the time this book starts, they're dating. And Sidi is part of one of the secret groups in Cairo who are devoted to the old gods, like the gods of old Egyptian religion, because they're sort of rumored to still be sleeping somewhere entombed deep below Egypt, which is a very cool concept. So in particular, Sidi is devoted to the goddess Hathor slash Sekhmet. And Sidi herself, because she's part of these underground groups that are like sort of persecuted and like live in the shadows, is a very mysterious character. So Fatma doesn't know everything about her and you get to like sort of learn more about who she is and her past over the course of the book. And also Sidi has like the absolute best introduction in this book because Fatma comes home to her apartment after a day of work and she finds Sidi sitting there petting her cat and it's like somewhat ominous, like 
a Bond villain. And at first you might think that she's bad news. You're like, oh no, someone broke into Fano's apartment and has your cat. But then the book is like, psych, they're girlfriends and CD is just dramatic. It's just iconic. I love it. It's so iconic. Like at the beginning of the scene, I was like, oh no, has the bad guy already broken into her apartment? Oh no, things are escalating so fast. This is terrible. And then and then it was just her girlfriend hanging out with her cat. It was really, really great. Right. So I just love CD because she has kind of a flair for the dramatic and like a mysterious past. It's just like extremely cool. Like Fatma is cool, but even she is dwarfed in coolness by CD. Fatma also has a flair for the dramatic, which is why they are a good partnership. That is true. Right. So anyway, um, as Fatma is tracking down the murderer behind the deaths of the Brotherhood, she starts to wonder if the imposter claiming to be Al-Jahiz is really an imposter, and if not, how he is so powerful. Because it's not just some guy putting on a mask and running around being like, ha ha, I am the returned Al-Jahiz. He's like displaying magical abilities and like riling up Cairo. And suddenly this isn't just a single murder mystery and like one murder they have to find. It's like something that's kind of threatening all of Cairo and possibly like wider geopolitical politics because there's about to be this like international conference happening in Cairo and suddenly the stakes are like much higher than just a couple of people getting murdered which you know isn't great but like isn't going to destabilize the entire world. Yeah this book does a good job with upping the stakes really well because I read the first chapter of this book and I was like okay some racist white guys got murdered why should I care about this? The book was like actually you do need to care because this may or may not cause World War One if things go really badly at this political summit. So it's a good way of like actually making you care about what's happened besides just wanting to understand like whether or not al is real. And it very much ties the stakes of this book and the murder investigation to the inherent world building that this book is built on because in order to understand whether this imposter is really Al-Jahiz or not, Fatma and Sidi and Hadia have to kind of delve into the history of Al-Jahiz and like the place that Jinn and angels hold in their current society. And I just think Clark was very good at balancing the fantasy and murder mystery aspects with the world building while also crafting this historical world that like is interesting because it still features like racism and colorism and like colonization but it's kind of like a slightly more helpful version because it's like well what if Egypt kicked Britain out like a little sooner than earlier and like British colonial powers were kind of on the wane in like the very start of the earliest 20th century rather than like still being powerful so it's not like a world where structural inequalities like racism or colonialism or colorism or misogyny don't exist but it's kind of one in which things like a little bit better than they were in actual history at that time yeah i found it really interesting because this book is kind of like well if egypt was suddenly full of magic and like the epicenter of magic coming into the world this would obviously kind of give them a leg up in terms of global politics and like this would have repercussions that would be seen for like decades afterwards so that was really interesting it's true that it's not necessarily alternate history where it's like everything is good actually and no racism exists but it's a world where it's like maybe we can like work to dismantle this with like more powerful tools uh, because they have magic and this also extends to like the character relationships for example Fatma is a female detective and this is considered unusual but it's not like completely unheard of and Fatma and Sidi who are in a lesbian relationship mostly keep their relationship a secret because of reasons connected to like Fatma's job and Sidi's connection to underground cults and not because they're two women so I thought that was kind of a refreshing change. Right, like there are still aspects of the Cairo of the Master of Jinn that like aren't perfect because obviously there were problems that existed like that weren't caused by colonialism, but it's sort of one in which stuff is like a bit better 
and that was interesting to me because I feel like there is kind of a stereotype that steampunk novels are maybe like a bunch of white Victorians flying around in airships and shooting people with clockwork guns. But in this one, it's like, well, what if steampunk technology and magic gave colonized countries the power to like fight back against colonialist powers the way they didn't have in history? So I just thought that was a very neat way of like taking this genre and make, not just making it like, oh, what if Victorians had airships, but sort of imagining it as this post-colonial world where like an African power is kind of allowed to be a really important geopolitical power. Yeah. Also, I want to go back to Fatma and Sidi's relationship a little bit because I did really like it. I am not hugely well-versed in like noir and detective stuff and murder mysteries, but it does seem a little bit like P.J. L. Clark was kind of drawing on the detective and the femme fatale archetype for the two of them because Fatma is like a very well-dressed detective. Seriously, there are so many descriptions of her suits in this book. It'll be like, Fatma was wearing an understated suit today. And then we'll go on to describe for like a paragraph how elaborate her outfit is, which is just very delightful. And then C.D. is like this cool, mysterious woman who kind of sticks to the shadows and she has a lot of secrets and she's like kind of a badass. Also, she has a motorcycle, which is very cool. So I like there was kind of like these noir stereotypes they were like kind of turned on their head because it was about two women of color and not like a white detective guy and his white girlfriend so that was cool i'm not super well versed in noir either but i have taken a literature class on like the femme fatale archetype and i feel like cd is a bit of a subversion of that in a way that like she's not a life-ruining woman with secrets but she is kind of mysterious and enigmatic and the main character has a relationship with her and there's like some tension there but instead of just being like and the woman was sexy and that was everyone's downfall it's more of like a, well that's like sort of a subplot in this murder mystery and they do have secrets and tension but like also they love each other which i enjoyed also cd is just like the coolest i will continue saying this throughout this episode because she is the coolest but she has both like gloves with knife claws on them because she's like devoted to the goddess Sekhmet who looks like a lion and a motorbike. So like you can't top CD in terms of coolness. I'm sorry, it's just not physically possible. Also, I enjoyed their the evolution of their relationship a lot over the course of this universe because when they met in Edgin in Cairo, it was kind of like a little bit of a cat and mouse dynamic because devotees of the old religion like CD are incredibly secretive, whereas Fatma is like a detective who's kind of a public figure. But by the start of A Master of Jinn, they're kind of in a more established relationship. And I enjoyed that a lot because I do love a good book with characters falling in love for the first time. But it can also be fun when like characters are already dating and they have like this like kind of secure relationship and they can just go around solving crimes together and sometimes learning secrets about each other but like they're basically very secure in their relationship so it's just like a fun subplot in this murder mystery that I just liked a lot. I agree that I think them being in a relationship at the start of this book sort of allowed you to see different layers to their relationship that you might not have seen if it was just about them already falling in love and like not being in a relationship at the start because there are just like some really good layers to this relationship where there's these tensions and secrets, but also there's this attraction and tenderness and kind of this genuine love. And it was really like one of my favorite parts of this book actually, uh, which I didn't quite expect. I was expecting to be really wowed by the world building, but then it's just like, oh, I love Fatma and Sidi. I think the other most relevant character in this book is Hadia, who's Fatma's newly assigned partner at the ministry. It's kind of like the old trope of like the 
older and like slightly more famous and jaded detective gets an idealistic new partner but like in a fun way because they're both women instead of just being like two guys and people we've seen that dynamic a lot i liked hadia a lot because she is a bit younger than fatma and she's like a little bit more naive and she doesn't quite know how things work in the ministry as much but she's like really smart and stubborn and she and fatma like developed this really fun relationship where they both had like their own strengths in the in the detecting business and it's just like a lot of enjoy it's just really enjoyable to read about because they're two characters who end up working together really well even though Fama's at first like I don't do partners I work on my own send her back to the office and Hadia's like no you are going to teach me the ways of being a cool female detective and then they become friends and it's great it is great I really enjoyed that this book is kind of about three complicated powerful women in terms of Fatma Hadia and Sidi and the way that I feel like they subvert common tropes and have their own things going on. Like I thought it was really interesting that through the character of Hadia you get a bit of an exploration of what it would mean to be religious in a world where there are literally creatures proclaiming to be angels just walking around as part of everyday life because Hadia is Muslim so is Fatma but Fatma is like not as devout so Hadia is Muslim and like at times is sort of like yeah I have to sort of grapple with the fact that I am religious and like also, I live in a world where there are beings that claim to be angels, and sometimes this is like a little hard to grapple with. So it was sort of interesting to see that as like a very down-to-earth, everyday aspect of what it would mean for magic to be real. I also thought it was cool that Hadia is allowed to be this badass, progressive woman who's also actively religious. Like, she doesn't think that her religion is holding her back or anything. She's like, I am a cool, competent, badass detective. And also, I like, I am Muslim and wear a hijab. Yeah, there's obviously that very negative stereotype in media that like Muslim women are like very backwards and like oppressed after you save from their religion. And in this case, like Hadia is allowed to be like a devout religious woman who's also a badass and wants to be a detective and like is breaking barriers for women. And it's just cool. And I, I really enjoyed that aspect, which I guess should be expected because it was set in Cairo, but it was just really enjoyable to read about a character who is Muslim and also like a badass feminist. Okay, but now I want to go back to nerding out about the world building in this book because there is so much to discuss. Like, I just keep thinking about how it integrates magic and steampunk together really well. Like there's this really cool aspect that first pops up in a dead gin in Cairo where angels in order to sort of manifest on our plane of existence have to build themselves clockwork bodies, which is just such a very cool take on existing theology and religion, but like combined with this unique setting, it was just very fun. And I really enjoyed getting to envision that. I loved the clockwork angels. They were like really cool to visualize. And in all the scenes that they're in, uh, PJLA Clark does a really good job of writing them as like very powerful characters who are kind of inhuman and live among humans, but don't really understand them. So I just really enjoyed that aspect because they came across like, we don't quite know if they're like biblical angels, but they're definitely not human and they have a lot of power. And I thought that was conveyed very well. A fair amount of this book is sort of drawing from existing Arabic folklore, like the Ring of Solomon becomes an important plot point in the second half of the book, and I'm like a little bit familiar with that just because I read like the Bartimaeus books when I was a kid, <laughs> but when that popped I was like, oh, I know this, haha. Uh, the Ring of Solomon by Jonathan Stroud, that was one of my middle school faves, but that, that was most of the context that I had for that particular bit of mythology, but it is fun to see how the authors kind of woven together existing mythology and theology in like this world that still feels very fresh and unique. There's also a lot of different types of jinn in this book and they all have different personalities and appearances like 
there's one Jin who works as a librarian for the ministry and he looks like a giant blue rhinoceros and I just love that. I was like, you go, rhinoceros librarian. <laughs> he was a very fun character. I love grouchy librarian characters because they're always kind of the barrier when people are trying to do research. I just enjoyed that in the same way that the humans are allowed to be these very multifaceted characters, the Ifrits and Jin and angels are also sort of allowed to have their own personalities and not just be like, well, you're this type of supernatural creature, so you're going to act this way. Instead, it was like, well, some of them are sculptors and some of them kill people and some of them are librarians. Some of them have gambling addictions. You know, it felt very real. It was like, these aren't just unearthly supernatural beings. They're just like a part of everyday life. And that means that like there's individual people who have sort of different personalities and tastes and stuff. Like we said before, Clark also draws on a lot of historical inspirations. And there's a couple things I could like kind of see where he got his inspiration from and other things that I was curious to learn more about. For example, Fatma is very friendly with some African-American jazz musicians who came to perform in Cairo to escape Jim Crow in America. And I think there were real people who did similar things, but I would be curious like how much that was drawn directly from history. And there's also this all-female gang who's mentioned several times and turn up a bit called the 40 Leopards. And I know that there was a real all-female gang called the 40 Elephants in like 20th century England. So I'm like, was that a reference to that thing? I'm very curious about this. It kind of felt like spot the historical reference. I mean, I was listening to a podcast interview with P. Jelly Clark before we started recording this. And there's probably like way more little tidbits that I didn't even pick up on just because I'm not super familiar with Egyptian history. Like apparently Fatma's last name um, is a nod to a famous Egyptian feminist. So I feel like he probably really did his history research when he was writing this book. So since this is a murder mystery and the whole plot is trying to figure out who did those murders, I think we should talk about the reveal because I thought it was really interesting. It turns out that Abigail Worthington, who is the daughter of the former leader of the Brotherhood, is behind the murders and then the appearances of the imposter Algehees because she wants to use magic to control all jinn in the world and become immensely powerful because she kind of is like, well, British colonial powers are dying. The only way that we can possibly succeed is if we harness the kind of magic that people in Egypt have been using. So I'm going to use this thing called I think, the Seal of Solomon, they call it in this book, but it's called other things in various folklores, which allows her to basically control all jinn. And she's been using this power to sort of rile up people in Cairo and create unrest because she really just wants to like destabilize Egypt and make England really powerful again. And there's this kind of interesting moment where she and Fatma get stuck in a cell together and she tries to appeal to Fatma on the basis that they're both women and it's like yeah I think you should understand like I feel like I've always been overlooked by my father because I'm a woman and you're this like trailblazer in the ministry and people probably have a lot of preconceived notions about you because of your gender so I feel like we probably really understand each other because of that and Fatma's like um absolutely not you're just a power hungry colonizer so I kind of enjoyed that Abigail being behind everything, I called a little bit just because I feel like at a certain point they weren't suspecting her. So I was like, hmm, I feel like she's probably the person behind everything. But then I liked that her character becomes a bit of this exploration of white feminism and how white women can promote imperialism and colonization. 
Yeah, the part where Abigail tries to appeal to Fatma on the basis of them both being women did make me laugh, but the Worthingtons as a whole are also a really scathing look at like colonialism, specifically British colonialism, and how white people throughout history have tried to like appropriate culture and steal power from other cultures. So it's like it's a murder mystery, but then it kind of ties into like larger ideas of imperialism and British colonialism, which I thought was very compelling and interesting. Like you, I also did at a certain point begin to suspect that Abigail was the murderer, if only because they were like, oh, Abigail, she's just like a silly woman. She has nothing to do with this. And I was like, are we sure about that? And then sure enough, she did in fact turn out to be the murderer. I also don't think it's necessarily a bad thing if at a certain point you manage to call the twists in a murder mystery because the clues have to be there and it has to be built up to. And I think if this book had just gone out of a left field and been like, guess what? It was that accountant that no one's name ever mentioned who worked in the fifth floor of the ministry that Fama had a one second conversation with on page 62. He was behind everything. I'd be like, that was so random. But with Abigail, I was like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Like I see the clues that are built up and like the red herrings and like the clues that they dismissed but actually led to her identity. So I think I personally, because I usually am pretty good at predicting plot twists, I never really mind when something is what I think it is because that means that it's been sort of telegraphed well and it fits into the story that's been established. So just because I sort of was like, oh, aha, it is probably Abigail. And then it was Abigail doesn't mean that I don't think it was a well-constructed murder mystery. Yeah, we're both basically like the queens of predicting plot twists in books. So when I was like, hmm, I think it could be Abigail. I wasn't like mad when I turned out to be wrong. And I also did like the way that the story feels like it starts out like a little bit small, like it's just who murdered these guys and then it gets really large and the murder starts out like who's the person behind this and it kind of expands into like a larger story about white feminism and colonialism which felt very fitting with some of the previous themes that had already been established in the book. So that worked for me as a reveal, even if I did guess it a little bit ahead of time. Also, this book has really good world building and like a murder mystery and great characters. But also I wanted to mention that I think it can be quite funny at times because for instance, at one point, Abigail tries to enslave some fire gin using this like magical tool that she's found. And when I was like, well, I'm a pacifist actually, like I've been hanging on earth and I've been learning about their philosophy and I think I don't really want to commit violence. So I don't really want to be your slave and rule over humanity. <laughs> and that was kind of a funny moment at the climax. That I yeah, that made me laugh really hard. And then there's a part further along in the book where some like really powerful djinn come to earth and they also try to convince um, the other djinn on earth to like follow them. I'm like, eh, we're not too into that. We like, we like humans. We've been introduced to the positive democracy. We're into pacifism. We're, we're not too down with the idea of reigning over humans. That just made me laugh really hard. I also liked how there's this kind of running gag of Fatma being like, I'm wearing something incredibly understated today so I can go do field work and not be suspicious. And then the book will go on to describe an incredibly recognizable dapper suit that is like not remotely understated. <laughs> It's great. Also, I just want to say that people who are doing fan art of Fatma's outfits, you were doing excellent work. Please keep it up. I have seen some really great art for this book. It's great. I mean, what if the point of writing a book where the main character is a well-dressed lesbian detective with cool suits if people don't immediately run to do fan art of it? And people are. So I think that is great. Basically, I would say that this book is smart and at a times a little bit dense because it has a lot of world building, but it's also 
really fun and imaginative and like the, the murder mystery pace just moves along at like a good enough clip that I was very invested and I never felt like we were just kind of like floundering there. It was a story that like felt like it was going somewhere but there's also so much fun world building that I didn't mind when we would just like stop and like explain some stuff. Definitely. I think Clark has put a lot of thought into this world ever since like the very first installment and this really kind of ups the game looking at the history and the culture and the repercussions of the introduction to magic but also I really enjoy the characters and the plot and like the moments of humor and the romance between Sidi and Fatma and stuff like that so I just overall thought this was a very solid historical fantasy debut and I would definitely read more books by P. Jelly Clark. I don't know if there are plans to write more books set in this specific universe because it is a very expansive world and like I think there are other things that could be explored but also this book wrapped up pretty well and also at this at the climax of this book the stakes are just so incredibly high it would probably be hard to top them all. That being said if there is ever a sequel I would love to see it sort of pick up some of the loose threads regarding the old gods of Egypt because I think it's a very cool concept that there's like these ancient gods slumbering under Egypt that could wake up and that would be a very interesting concept for a sequel. Hint, hint, if anyone is listening, I would read that. We as Shepherd the Twins shall meet whenever we do an episode on a standalone book or just like, I think there should be a sequel. I do agree that the stakes at the climax of this book are incredibly high because they basically involve like the possible apocalypse and like the enslavement of the world by Jin, and that'd be kind of hard to replicate but it's also such a cool world and the characters are so compelling that I would love to read something else set in this universe and I agree I think that there's a bit of a thread about the old gods of Egypt that could be picked up because there's kind of this subplot about whether or not the old gods can like speak through their worshippers who can become avatars of them and it's not quite resolved but I think you could definitely do something really interesting with that if you wanted to. That being said, honestly, whatever this author writes, I will go read it because I also really liked his novella, The Black God's Drums, and that's set in a completely different world entirely. So he's definitely not limited to just writing steampunk magical murder mysteries set in early 20th century Cairo, as cool as that concept is. Yeah, I've read his other novellas, which are The Black God's Drums, like you said, which is also steampunk, but in a different world, and Ring Shout, which is like a really interesting novella that's like, what if the KKK were literal monsters and a cool black woman with a sword defeated them? So that's also really good. And like, basically, I'll just read anything this author writes because he does such interesting historical fantasy stuff. Yeah, we probably should move on to the next book in this episode, though, because this is a two-in-one for historical fantasy murder mysteries. So the second book they're going to be talking about is The Conductors by Nicole Glover. And like just a quick note on language before we get into the actual discussion of this book, The Conductors is a novel with elements of fantasy, but it's also heavily grounded in real history and deals with the institution of American slavery. So we're just gonna try to use respectful language that historians have been encouraging people to adopt when talking about this. For example, saying enslaved person instead of slave, enslaver instead of master, freedom seeker instead of fugitive and runaway, etc. Because language is really important and using these preferred terms is a better way to acknowledge the humanity of enslaved African-American people and not downplay the awful institution of American history. So that's just something that we are going to try to do when talking about this book because slavery does feature a lot in it. If you'd like to read more about this, you can check out the article the Vocabulary of Freedom, which is on the Underground Railroad Education Center website. That's where I got my information from, and I'll be linking to it in the show notes. 
So The Conductors is an adult historical murder mystery set in 1870s Philadelphia, which is the reconstruction era of American history after the Civil War and the end of slavery, when a lot of newly freed Black people were trying to make new lives for themselves. And this book follows the married couple Hetty and Benji Rhodes as they investigate a murder that's occurred in Philadelphia's Black community. Hetty and Benji during the Civil War and prior to it were conductors on the Underground Railroad, and they have since turned to solving murders and tracking down missing people. Specifically, they solve crimes and mysteries involving the Black community in Philadelphia because they know that the police won't do anything about it. So when an old friend is murdered and his body is found with a curse sigil on it, the two's investigation takes a much more personal turn and it kind of ups the stakes in their regular uh, missing person cases. So mini history lesson, the conductors is set during the reconstruction era, which was the time following the civil war in America where the country was rebuilding and they were figuring out how to reintegrate seceded Confederate states back into the US and also determining the legal status of African-Americans. I have read historical fiction set in this time period before, but nothing that's ever explicitly dealt with the reconstruction era, but this book has stuff like the Freedmen's Bureau or former enslaved people trying to reunite with our lost family members and such, as well as the new black community that was developed in Philadelphia this time. So I found that a really interesting corner of history that I had never read about before in a historical fiction book, but I would really like to read more stuff set in this time period after reading this book. The version of history in the world of the conductors is pretty much the same as in actual history, unlike A Master of Jin, which changes stuff pretty radically. So it seems like the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln's assassination, etc., like all that stuff has kind of gone down the same as in our world. <laughs> The major difference is that magic is an accepted and pretty normal part of life. And there are two types of magic in this world, sorcery and celestial magic. Sorcery is kind of your somewhat expected type of magic, which is performed with wands and magical incantations. And it originated in Europe. I get the sense that there are maybe a lot of complicated rules about sorcery, but Hetty, the main character, doesn't actually care enough about them because she's not a practitioner of it. And like I said, the practice of sorcery originated in Europe and it's legally restricted to white people. But there's also celestial magic, which is practiced among African-Americans. And it's a mixture of lore that was brought over from Africa and the West Indies and is knowledge that was preserved among enslaved people and kind of mingled together into a surviving form of magic. And the main aspect of celestial magic is sigils inspired by constellations, which I thought was very cool. But there's also sort of this potion-based magic. And sometimes this manifests as characters being able to summon a celestial creature based off of a constellation, like making a guard dog by summoning Candace Major. But other times it means kind of applying a sigil to a physical object to give it qualities like strength or endurance. And I thought that was just a very interesting, unique aspect of this book. Yeah, it's a really neat magic system. I don't think that I've read a book with a magic system based off of stars quite like this. We, like you said, don't get to learn a lot about sorcery, but I thought celestial magic was much more interesting. It's actually illegal in this universe for a black person to own a wand or perform sorcery, but all of the Hedy's friends and herself are just like, why would I want to do that? I have celestial magic and that works fine. And honestly, I respect that because it's a way more unique magic system and I really enjoyed reading about that. I also saw some connections in the ways that constellations were important for enslaved people seeking freedom, such as that drinking gourd song that we had to learn about in elementary school. And so there's kind of this connection between constellations being important culturally to Black people like Hetty, but also being important to their magic. And by that drinking gourd song we had to learn about in elementary school, I think you mean the song Follow the Drinking Gourd, which I don't know a ton about. I meant to look it up before this, but 
I think it's basically a song that sort of in a coded way describes constellations that people who were seeking freedom could follow to like escape and go to the north. So there is sort of a history of constellations being like an important part of history related to like the institution of slavery. So it could be that was something the author was drawing on. I'm, I'm not sure. I didn't look too much into the inspirations for this book, but I would be kind of curious to investigate that now. Well, the book does mention in some flashbacks that enslaved people would occasionally pass like coded messages through songs uh, with instructions about the best way to escape to freedom. So I think that maybe it was probably on purpose, even if it was a coincidence, it's still an interesting coincidence and a very unique magic system that I haven't read about before. Hetty in particular is a dressmaker, so she can stitch sigils for like protection or stealth or reserves of power into clothing, which I really liked. As we've talked about in prior episodes, we really love it when fantasy heroines in books are like gainfully employed and have a skill that is other than being witch, princess, or thief. And in this case, I really liked that Hetty is a seamstress and it's kind of an important part of the book. Aside from it being her job, it's also things she uses to do magic. She sews clothing for her friends. She like thinks about fashion a lot. So it factors into the book a lot, not just in terms of magic, although I really enjoy the magical aspect of her work as well. Her husband, Benji, on the other hand, is a blacksmith who also does carpentry, so he can sort of carve or otherwise work sigils into objects. I thought this was a really also neat piece of world building because I really like it and magic is a very tactile thing, which is probably indicated by episode 17 when we talked about bread magic, and I really like that idea. But I also think it means that the magic in this book has the possibility to be used in really versatile ways. So I thought that was very cool. The plot of this book is kicked off when a mutual friend of Benji and Hetty is murdered. And the reason that this is so concerning to them is not only that they know the victim, since he was someone that they helped during their time as conductors on the Underground Railroad, but also that someone has carved a sigil that some people believe uh, means that someone is cursed onto his body, meaning that whoever killed him did it deliberately and had some kind of malicious intent behind it. And as Hetty and Benji both know, people are often murdered by someone that they know, so they become afraid that maybe someone in their circle of friends is a hiding secrets, and they're not really sure why their friend was killed but they know there must have been a reason so they're kind of trying to seek out these answers and getting justice for their friend because they know that the white police philadelphia will never work on that kind of case this is a murder mystery obviously because that is sort of the central plot of this because hetty and benji worked as conductors for years so they're used to kind of braving danger and using celestial magic for protection investigation and the two of them have turned to like tracking down missing people and solving murder mysteries after the end of the Civil War, but it's also a book about the community the murder occurred in, which I really liked because um, Hetty and Benji were considered heroes working for the Underground Railroad and they have pretty broad connections throughout Philadelphia because a number of the people that they helped lead to freedom settled there after the end of the war. And also both of them were separated or otherwise lost their like birth families when they were enslaved. So they've kind of built up this new family around them of people that they have like grown close to in adulthood. And this murder really rocks their world because it's not just someone that they know who's been killed in a very tragic and untimely way, but also it raises the suspicion that like there could be a murder hiding among their community and the people that they have built up around them like might not be as trustworthy as they think. There is kind of a big cast of side characters. And to be honest, I did occasionally have trouble keeping them straight sometimes, but I also did find it to be a really interesting community because Hetty and Benji have met a lot of these people uh, because either they were enslaved together or they were working on the Underground Railroad. But now that the Civil War is over, they're all kind of trying to build lives 
for themselves. And some people have become teachers, some people have become politicians, some people have become blacksmiths, and some people like their friend who's murdered is kind of trying to like leave behind his past. Some people are trying to seek out their friends and family members who were lost during the Civil War. So it's just like a really interesting community of Black people who have all kind of like gone through some bad stuff in their past. They're trying to move forward and create a new life and a new world for themselves. And so this murder kind of rocks their community because they're in what they hope is like a better world, but then unexpected tragedy hits them anyway. I agree. I did have a little bit of trouble keeping track of everyone, but that might just be me. And also because there are characters named Bernice, Alice, and Eunice who all appear in the book, which confused me a little bit. I'm not the best at keeping track of like huge casts of character, but I thought it worked really well because even though Hetty is the single point of view character in this novel, it makes the world feel very fleshed out. And also it meant that you were constantly trying to figure out the sort of tangled web of relationships that could have led to murder because we find out that there are characters who are keeping secrets and characters who've been like lying about their pasts or their identities. Because a lot about this book is about characters building lives and constructing families now that slavery has been abolished. So for instance, there's a subplot of Hetty searching for her sister Esther, who she was separated from um, when they were both still enslaved. And there's kind of this idea that like characters might have had families or relationships that they were separated from and they have moved on and like had to leave those people behind and like form new relationships after they were forcibly separated. But now that people are free and sort of seeking out their family, they have to sort of confront pasts that they might have not thought they would ever be able to. And for some people, that's a good thing. But for other people, it might mean like you were married and then you got separated and then later you got married again. But now your first spouse has come back into the picture and characters have to kind of grapple with how their history and their current lives fit together, which of course leads to a lot of tension that has possibly bubbled over into murder. One thing that I also really liked about this book was the casual inclusion of LGBTQ characters in a historical setting because Hetty and Benji's friends include a gay couple and a trans guy. And even though this is a historical setting, their identities are completely accepted by everyone within their immediate circle. And I just think it's really nice when historical novels acknowledge that gay and trans people were not, were in fact not invented in the latter half of the 20th century and they have been here all along. So it was cool to see characters like Oliver and Sai just kind of living their lives, existing, being gay or trans, and just like having a good time. I also liked that none of them die and they're not like victims of violence related specifically to their identities. So that was just kind of refreshing to read about in a historical novel because a lot of times people are like, gay people didn't exist back then. Or like if they did exist, they're having a really bad time. This book is just like, here are Hetty and Benji's friends who are a gay couple who live in a house together. And here is Benji's apprentice who's also trans. And that's just nice and refreshing. I mean, I wouldn't say that the gay couple are necessarily having the happiest time during this book, but it's not necessarily because they're gay. It's more because of the aforementioned trying to integrate your past history and the current life you've built yourself theme that comes up throughout this book. But I do agree. I did enjoy how there are LGBTQ characters who are just like allowed to exist within this book and characters accept them. And Hetty's like, yeah, that's Sai. He's a guy. Yeah, that's Oliver. He's in love with Thomas they're our friends, so we're going to accept their identities, and there's murder happening, but like not really any violence towards these LGBTQ characters. So I thought that was a neat aspect of the book that I did not know about going in. 
I will say that I did not know immediately when I started reading the book who the murder victim was going to be because it didn't say in the description, but I did clock pretty early on who it was going to be because uh, their friend Charlie Robinson at the beginning of the book is like keeps asking Hetty to talk because he's like has some kind of problem that he needs to talk to her about. But she's kind of mad at him about like a minor argument they had and keeps putting him off. And as soon as a character in a murder mystery book is like, well, we'll talk later, that's always code for like, you're going to discover this person's dead body before you ever have time for this conversation and sure enough charlie was in fact murdered before they ever got to have that conversation oh yeah that is definitely a sure sign that you're going to be the murder victim in a book i also do think this novel even though charlie is dead for most of it does a very interesting job of building him up as this complex character who had flaws but also like didn't deserve to be murdered and had sort of a complicated relationship with hetty and his family and i do like it when characters who are the murder victims are not either total assholes or just poor innocent victim. It's kind of like Charlie had some things he got tangled up in that led to his death. And also maybe he didn't have the best relationship with Hetty and Benji at the time of his death, but also he's sort of a complicated character. So I like that you get to sort of see characters uncover the layers to him over the course of the book. Yeah, I enjoyed that a lot. As you said, Charlie is not a perfect character. We learn that like one of the reasons that Hetty and Benji haven't been getting along with him great is that he's kind of been getting into gambling. And he also, uh, like Hetty and Benji, is uh, someone who sought freedom when they were enslaved, but he's kind of tried to like leave behind his past and like advance in society. And they're sort of wondering if that means that he's like trying to leave behind his friends and community. And they never really get a chance to resolve any of these questions because then he's murdered. And so they're kind of left being like, he was our friend and like we had an argument with him, but he is still our friend and we are going to seek justice for him. So it's just kind of an interesting way of building up a character who is dead for pretty much the whole book but by the end you still have a very strong sense of what this person was like also in terms of other character stuff in this book i want to talk about i want to say that i really liked hetty and benji's relationship and how it developed over the course of the conductors i also really liked it like i said they are a married couple who worked together on the Underground Railroad for years, but they actually got married not because they were like madly in love, but because it was basically for convenience's sake because they were always traveling together. And it was just like more convenient to be like, it is us, a married couple traveling together, not like scandalous unmarried couples. So it's basically just kind of a marriage of convenience because they like need a partner and someone to help pay the rent. And so they have like a very solid partnership where they know each other really well and they've been in and out of pretty dangerous situations together, but their relationship up until this point has like mostly been platonic but Hetty does realize over the course of the story that she does have romantic feelings for Benji and is basically like oh no how do I tell my lawfully wedded husband that I've been living with for years and I'm in love with him this is so awkward which is a great situation I love like a marriage convenience turned into a real marriage it's just like a really enjoyable trope and I was kind of delighted to find it in this book. I think it added some needed lightness to this book and kind of support among, you know, all the dead bodies and murder and questioning whether people that you love and support are actually secretly murderers. So I did sort of enjoy that because it's just like a little breath of fresh air amidst a lot of bad things happening in this book. I also just think it was a fun dynamic because Hetty is a very self-assured, competent character because she's risked her life and her freedom for years working at the Underground Railroad. She's solved plenty of murder mysteries and missing persons cases in Philadelphia since they moved there. But she's also like, I don't know how to deal with my emotions. Help! So I enjoyed the contrast of that in her character. 
Also, I read a lot of young adult books, which have kind of constraints about the character relationship due to people's ages. So I just really liked that Hetty and Benji have like a very long history together. They've known each other for like a lot of years. They've been married for several years and they have like this really understanding partnership where they like know exactly what the other one is thinking and what kind of plans they want to enact and like the best way to solve their problems together. So it was just like enjoyable to read them playing off of each other and trying to like solve murders and working together. So I enjoyed that a lot. Also, even though, like you said, the two of them are a very solid team and they've worked together for a very long time prior to the start of the novel, there's also still some tension between them and some secrets that get teased out over the course of the novel, which it's a very vague spoiler, but um, I do enjoy just like how it turns out that both of them are sort of hiding things from the other one and they have to kind of grapple with that and be like, oh, this person that I thought that I trusted completely and unconditionally has actually been hiding things from me and the way that it did add a bit of like tension to this because characters really have to question like everything that they know once this murder mystery kicks them off into exploring like the wider community of characters. Yeah, to get more directly into spoilers, the secrets they've been keeping are that Hetty has been searching for her sister Esther since the end of the war and she has not had very much luck with it and she's reached a lot of dead ends. She kind of told Benji like I'll take a break from this until I hear back from the last of the leads that I've sent out and she actually has been continuing to investigate and Hetty learns that Benji has been working in an underground boxing ring in order to get more money and so when both these secrets come out the characters are like a little bit mad at each other for keeping secrets and like doing things that the other one wouldn't approve of but they're also able to like work through their argument in a mature way and like sit down and have a conversation which I appreciated because I have read one too many books in which minor miscommunications cause massive drama between characters so it was kind of refreshing to read a book where Hetty's like I'm kind of bad at Benji for keeping a secret from me but I'm going to try to figure out why he was keeping it from me and try to understand why he was doing that and not like immediately get really mad at him so that was very refreshing to read about. Also if we're just talking spoilers now I just wanted to say that the resolution of the subplot where Hetty has been looking for her sister Esther was so heartbreaking because because they were separated when they were younger and Hetty has been looking for her for years and years and really hasn't had any success and has thought about giving up at times but it's like this is my sister I have to find her she's like my only living family in the world and near the end of the book she gets a letter from her sister being like I've heard about you and I'm gonna come visit you but then it also turns out that her sister died of yellow fever really recently and they never get to reunite and Hetty has to kind of reflect on the fact that in constantly looking for her sister, she's been unable to put down any roots. Like she hasn't really taken a stable job in Philadelphia. She hasn't looked into learning healing magic because that was something she wanted her sister to teach her. She's been like really afraid of committing to anything because she's just like, well, hopefully my sister will come back and like I can uproot my life and we can go like live together and be finally reunited. And the fact that she then has to accept that this is never going to happen. And like, she has to move on from her sister and just like live her own life knowing that she'll never get to see her again was really heartbreaking. Yeah that was a really emotional subplot throughout the whole book and it's not resolved until the very end and the way the author does it is especially sad because Hetty has been like waiting and waiting and waiting on these letters that she sent out asking around for her sister and she finally gets the last of them back and first she reads the letter that her sister sent her which is like I'm so glad we found each other I can't wait to see you again we haven't seen each other in over a decade but like you're still my sister and I miss you and she's really excited about getting to see her sister and then she opens up the rest of the letter and, and it's obituary saying that she died really recently of yellow fever and it's just like kind of a punch like it's just kind of upsetting because you're like these characters were separated for so long and then like they missed each other by so little and it's just like a very well done tragedy 
or the way that Charlie, who dies at the very start of the book, was supposed to meet with his mother the day after he died, and he hadn't seen her for years because they'd been separated. Also, oof, that was really sad. Like, I think sometimes with murder mysteries, you're just like, oh yeah, there's some murder and some clever twists and foreshadowing and red herrings. But I think this book did a really good job of digging into the humanity of a murder mystery and the loss and the missed opportunities and the conflicts that will never be given a chance to be resolved in the way that it really upends a whole community. So you're not just like, hmm, I wonder if this is a red herring or like if this person is suspicious or if this is just a coincidence. You also like really feel what it means for someone to die and what the ripple effect from their death means and how characters have to kind of grapple with that loss and move on. So it is a murder mystery, but it's also a very character focused book. Yeah, like you said, it is a very character focused book and has a lot about missed opportunities and tragedy. I think that also kind of ties into the reveal of who the murderer is because it turns out to be someone who is angry at Hetty and Benji and is trying to hurt them and their reputation because he believes that they left behind his wife when they were seeking freedom on one of their trips to the Underground Railroad. And it's, it's this character that is like, Previously, we don't know a lot about his past, but then it eventually comes out that he was married and he was separated from his wife and he was hoping that Hetty and Benji would help them reunite and they didn't. And he kind of felt like that they failed him and he wants to punish them for this. So it's another story of like this person who lost something and wasn't able to get it back. But in this case, he's decided to try to blame these two characters who did everything they could to save as many people as possible. So like he's a murderer, but when you learn what the backstory is, you're like, oh man, that's actually really sad. Like I don't condone your actions, but that's still a tragedy. Yeah, I mean, ultimately Clarence isn't even the villain. It's just the entire institution of American slavery that put people in these situations. It may just have been. Now that I think about it, I don't think there's actually any white people in this book. I was just thinking about it and I'm like, no, I think pretty much every single character in this book is African-American, which is, I think, very cool because sometimes people be like, well, history was mostly white, so we should focus on the white people. But no, like there were communities of people of color and like they had stories to tell and cultures and stuff like that. So it's a book that is very grounded in the Seventh Ward of Philadelphia, which was a historically black community that developed after the end of the Civil War. And it's like so very firmly embedded in that community. I think there's maybe like one or two white characters that pop up, but it's largely a story that is more concerned with creating this very fleshed out and real world filled with African-American characters, which I thought was very cool and not something I have seen a ton in historical fiction. Oh, and also a fun fact, the film rights have been optioned for this, which I think is very exciting. I think it would also work really well as a TV show, but I could also definitely see it as a movie. And I think this is like an era of history that really doesn't get explored very much in historical fiction. I definitely have not read any other books about the freed Black community in Philadelphia in the 1870s, although like if there's any others out there, I would like to read them. So I think this could make a really good film and I would love to like see the character relationships and the magic and the murder mystery play out on the big screen. So like fingers crossed that happens at some point. I also feel like the constellation magic would look really cool. I'm just imagining how that would be. And I think it would just be very cool to have a contrast of this very historical grounded real setting, but then this very fantastical celestial magic. I think that would look very cool. Until that happens, this is a book that works pretty well as a standalone, but it is part of a series and there's going to be some sequels. So I'll definitely check out those at some point while I wait on the movie. The continued adventures of Hetty and Benji, who are now in love and therefore better at solving murder mysteries? I guess we'll see. Who knows? I hope so. I guess, do we have general thoughts on these books? I 
thought they were both really good. And I actually did not quite realize that they were both both going to be so murder mystery heavy when I put them on the list because a couple months in advance, I was like, oh, hey, we should do something for Black History Month that's like historical fantasy books by Black authors because that's probably something we can find some books that fit well together for. And then Shreppies fit really well because they're both murder mysteries as well. They're magical murder mysteries even, which is a new favorite genre of mine now, I think. I also think magic murder mystery is a really interesting genre because it opens up way more possibilities for who could have done it and how they could have done it because with the normal murder mystery it's like well you can have like a knife or a gun or poison or whatever but with this one it's like well you could have a teleporting magical gin or you could have a cursed sigil or like you could have someone who used magic to look like someone else and then went and killed someone it's just like the possibilities are endless so like the plot is just like so wild because it's not just well, we got to figure out who killed this person and why they motivated it if it was a crime of passion or like a premediated thing. But now it's like murder, magic, demons, gin, cursed sigils. And it like really adds a whole extra layer to the murder mystery where it's like, there's just so many more possibilities for how it could have happened. That's not to say that regular non-magical murder mysteries are bad. It's just that we are both fantasy fans at heart. So when it's a murder mystery and there's magic, that's basically a perfect combination for us. I think the reason that I liked these two books so much is that they are murder mysteries, but they're also about more than just like who killed this one dead guy. It's also about the characters and their relationships. And it's also about like building up a really interesting and compelling alternate history starring characters of color. And I think those are just like some really interesting ideas that I'm glad have been explored in multiple books. I liked that in both of these worlds, the, the, Alternate histories don't seek to necessarily erase historical racism and prejudice and colonization up until this point, but they do kind of try to imagine the way that communities might be a little bit better than they are in history, thanks to magic and like how magic could subtly or not so subtly change stuff. And I just found that really interesting. It's one of the reasons that I love historical fantasy so much. So these books are kind of small scale in that they're about like, who killed that guy, but they're also larger scale and like how would magic change this world? It made me think about how speculative fiction and science fiction can be about imagining a better completely alternate world or a better future. But in these ones, especially Master of Jinn, it's like, well, what if history was like a little bit better? Like what would it mean if these people had power that they didn't have in history? So it's sort of magic, not just as this cool trick or like a way of being powerful, but as a way to empower marginalized groups which I think worked really well for both of these books. I would definitely read more in each of these worlds and with these characters, but I also appreciate that they worked really well as standalones. And I closed A Master of Jin and the conductors feeling very satisfied in both the reveal of the mystery and also the character relationships. And honestly, that's pretty high praise considering how many fantasy books these days are just like endless series that you have to read the next one in order to get resolution. It was nice to read a book and like get to the end and be like, that was good and felt complete. Also, it's not a main part of both of these books, but I just thought both of them had really good romantic relationships. There was some genuine love and support, but also the characters had these moments of tension and secrets in both of them. And I enjoyed that it wasn't just like, oh, we hate each other and I can never trust you again. But it wasn't also like, well, everything else is terrible, but our relationship is totally unrealistically idyllic. It's like the characters have to kind of work at learning to trust each other and understand each other, but also they do this because they love each other. And whether that's Fatma and Sidi dealing with being a detective and a devotee of an ancient religion, or Hetty and Benji sort of having to figure out what it means to actually be in love and married, not just be married and solving murders together. 
Also, I think someone should write a crossover in which Hetty makes a magical suit for Fatma because I feel like that is begging to be written. <laughs> I would read that. Authors, if you're listening, we have a suggestion for you. And with that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you'd like to catch up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Never Twins Cast, Instagram at Never the Twins Shall Meet, Tumblr at Never the Twins Shall Meet.tumblr.com, or you can just find us on our website at Never the Twins Shall Meet.com. If you've enjoyed this episode or others, feel free to go leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It's really helpful and makes us feel good.